We want to continue to look at worship and joy in the context of the character of God in Psalms 33. So let me read these passages to you again. And then we will turn to the Lord in prayer and begin to look at some things this, this evening. Psalm 33, verse 1, the word of our Lord says, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For, here's why, the word of the Lord is upright. All his works are done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for this day. I'm so thankful, Father, that you have move the heart of the church to gather weekly in, in worship, in prayer and in praise and in the preaching and the teaching of your word. Father, you are wise and we praise you for that. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to allow us to use this time. I pray that the spirit of God would take our worship and set it apart for your glory, that he would sanctify it and make it suitable in your sight and that you would receive our worship with joy. And then, Father, I pray that your spirit would work within us as well and continue to shape us into the image of Christ, that he might take your word and he might take the worship that we engage in and, and use all of that to continue to mold and shape us into the image of the blameless one. As we look forward to the day where we will experience the fullness of being blameless in your presence. And according to Jude, that will experience will be one of great joy. So, Father, we praise you for these things and we ask for your help in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.
So when you look at the first few passages like we did this morning, it starts with joy, it ends with joy. So joy is the context of what's going on here. But David teaches us quite about uh, quite a bit about worship as we walk through these, especially the first. Well, primarily the first four verses sing for joy in the Lord. He begins and then he concludes with place skillfully with a shout of joy. And I mentioned that this morning. I'll expound on that a little bit. I don't understand it all. Uh, my son in law is actually in church history class right now, and that's exactly what they're going through is church history in regard to music. And when you hear the word prescribed, they take that very literally. In other words, if it is not mentioned or prescribed in the New Testament, it is not done. And so there is no mention of instruments in the New Testament. Therefore, the church for the first 1,250 years did not have any instruments in the church. And some of the guys that I read and, and study behind, Calvin Edwards and Plumer even, they considered it sinful to have instruments in the church. Plumer says it was downright sinful, which is very interesting. And so you'll never settle the argument. You know, there are still some denominations that will not use instruments uh, in their church. And I'm sure it's for those reasons. Obviously, in the Old Testament, you say, well, why would they be OK with the Old Testament? But God would not be OK with the New Testament. Their argument is, well, it was a part of the law. And so since all of that's been set aside, instruments have been set aside, it should be only the sanctified, sanctified voices of the saints that are singing. Uh, of course, we do appreciate the sanctified voices of the saints. Sometimes we sing on Wednesday nights. And, and for me, y'all's voices, that's where it's at for me because I hear your voices and I know who it is and I know where you're sitting and singing. And I know we all can't sing, but none of that matters to me because I love the person behind the voice. And so it brings me joy to hear your specific voices singing out to God. But nonetheless, I appreciate the instruments as well. And I'm so thankful that we do have talented people who are able to lead us and play skillfully. Uh, we've got a number that can play skillfully, but I also understand the concern. In fact, if I was ever called to churches that Worship was clearly nothing more than entertainment and a show on stage. I would probably cancel all worship, all musical instruments, all the lights, everything that goes on. And I would give them hymnals and we would sing a cappella until we began to understand what worship was all about. If their hearts have to be motivated by something going on just to lift up their voices to God, I would just stop it until we figured out. God alone is the cause for us lifting up our voices in praise. So anyway, I understand the contention. It's become a massive distraction in the American church. Um, but at the same time, like Jeremy said, everything has become sinful. If you just give us a little bit of time, we can make everything sinful. So I don't necessarily think that would be the answer to it. But I, I do understand the problem with it. So the argument, I guess, will continue. It went on for 1,200 years, and we're not going to solve that problem tonight. It's just a shame the church has always argued about something, and that was a big one. But worship, the reason for it, he answers that question in verse 4. And so we'll look at verse 4, and then I think I'll skip to verses 20, 21, and 22. 
Verse four, after the, the commands are all these imperatives. And frankly, I, well, specifically, they're the only imperatives that we're going to find in here. And they're about worship. Joy, again, is the heart behind the worship. But the reason for the worship is the person of God. And he begins to explain the person of God in verse four. Because we play skillfully, because we sing to him with a new song, because the word of the Lord is upright. Now, stop right there. Talk about that for just a second, because this church is heavy on the word of God. But what David is driving out here, the word upright means true. Everything God says is true and trustworthy. Therefore, we can worship him. There's never a time when we should ever call his word into question. And no one's like that but God. We want our friends to be like that. We certainly want our bosses to be like that. We want our moms and dads to be like that. We want them to say trustworthy words that are true so we have a rock to stand on. But we all know we're just not able to do that at times. We want to be able to do that, but we can't. But everything God has ever said is true and dependable. Therefore, we can worship him, right? Secondly, he talks about his work, all his work is done in faithfulness. And he begins to talk about faithfulness. Again, it's the issue of trustworthy, that sort of thing. Everything God has said is absolutely faithful. And therefore, I mean, everything God has done is absolutely faithful. Therefore, we can worship him. So it's his word, his work. And again, I'll bring you back to the, the arrangement of the, this hymn or this psalm is absolutely perfect in every way that he talks. And then he comes to his character. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. And then let this throw you for just a second, if you can catch it. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. What's peculiar about that? Why is it peculiar? The earth is full. What's the word loving kindness? Kessid. Kessid refers to God's what kind of love? His covenant love. So what in the world is the world or the earth full of the covenant love of God? How is that possible? Shouldn't his people be the only ones to experience his covenant love? And yet here we have David writing the earth is absolutely full of the covenant love, the kessed of the Lord. And we're reminded of, of this, and we, we have a tendency to forget this, right? When God reveals himself to Moses again, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passes by and he proclaims himself as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in this loving kindness and truth. That is the character of God, period. God is full of loving kindness. And so we can worship him for that. In fact, all of the earth should worship him because that is his character. He doesn't change his character when he's around his covenant people versus the, the people that are not in covenant with God. God is just full of loving kindness, period. And we can celebrate that as the character of God. We can worship him for that reason. That's how everyone could know him. If they would worship him, he would reveal himself as a God that is full of his 
chesed or his loving kindness. So those are the reasons that David is calling us into worship and we are to worship the Lord with a heart of joy. So if I ask you this question, where is joy found? What would you say? Come on, some of you got to get this. Huh? In the Lord. In the Lord. Only place that joy can be found is in the Lord, right? But I asked you this question this morning, or I told you I would get, get back to it. So you know it's in the Lord, right? So how do you acquire that? Because just the knowledge of where it is is not enough for you to experience that joy in the Lord. So how in the world... Do you acquire that or receive that joy in the Lord? It's answered in the Psalms, but would anybody like to fathom a guess or give me the answer from the Psalms? And we know where it is. It's only in the Lord. It's only in him because he is the one that is everlasting and unchanging. And so if our joy is in the Lord, our joy remains constant through all of life. Right. But how do we appropriate that? Look at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart rejoices where in him because why we trust in his holy name. So if I ask you, where is joy found? It's always in the Lord. But if I ask you, how do I appropriate that joy in the Lord? You trust in his holy name. That's it. It's really quite that simple. When you live a life of trusting God in all things, you experience the joy in God because back to verse four, his word is true. His faithfulness, all of his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. And so if that is where my trust is, my experience as a Christian will be one of joy. Because of the character of God. Now, we can flip this around, right? We can flip this around. You want to kill your joy? Stop trusting the Lord. You want to kill your joy? Start trusting in yourself. It's really that easy when we get filled with fear and frustration and confusion and all these sort of things. It's obvious we're not trusting in the Lord anymore. And it's very difficult for fear and joy to live side by side. Right. It's very difficult for frustration and joy to just be in the same house together. Well, the reason for your lack of joy is because there is a lack of trust. And so David is painting this picture of God that I'll go to, through in a whole lot more detail in just a second. He's painting this picture of God because he's trying to bolster your trust because he knows if you trust God, you're going to experience joy in God. And the longer you live and the more that you walk with the Lord and you see his faithfulness and you experience his loving kindness, the more joy that you have. Paige and I are getting to do the hindsight is 2020 thing with Audrey and Jonathan, because y'all remember when you're young and you're married, you got all this going on, you got all these decisions to make. And so it's a joy for us to encourage them to trust the Lord, because we know if they do. Right. What is their experience going to be in their relationship with God? It's going to be one with joy, because when was a time that God 
did not care for you as his person or his people, as his child, rather. When was there a time in that? The pages of God, I got 25 year history of God's faithfulness in our marriage. 25 years. We find ourselves at times struggling to trust God, but then we remind one another we have to trust the Lord in these things. And we're able to walk confidently with joy because God has never been unfaithful to us. I would have showed you a little thing that popped up on my Instagram. A pastor had his arm out and he says, I've gotten a tattoo for every time God has been unfaithful to me. Of course, there's nothing on his arm. And that's absolutely true, right? So David's trying to teach the congregation. And this is a very unique psalm because in verse one, the preacher will, if you will, is preaching, sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. And then in verse 20, the righteous congregation answers, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. Our heart rejoices in him. David has told them to sing for joy in him. And they're saying, hey, our heart is full of joy in him. And here's why. Because we have trusted in his holy name. That's pretty cool. You don't find the Psalms like that. Preacher preaches, congregation responds. Nailed it that Sunday and we get to go home. They got it, right? Let me show you a very difficult time that someone chose to trust in the Lord. So go to Matthew and then back up to the left until you find Habakkuk. I helped you there, didn't I? Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. It's on page 799 in my Bible, my Bible, if that helps you any. <laughs> Get to Nahum and Micah, have gone too far, go back to the right. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, you haven't got there yet. It's just three chapters long, so. So let me give you a little bit. We'll just do a quick overview of this prophet. This is a very unusual prophet. This is the last prophet in Judah before the fall of Jerusalem. So around 586 B.C. when Jerusalem falls to Babylon, which is the worst moment in the history of the nation of Israel, bar the crucifixion of Christ in the New Testament. So Habakkuk is the last and he is operating as a prophet in the worst, the very worst. And in his entire book, he never speaks to the people. It's fascinating. His conversation is with the Lord. And so he has this question and answer thing going on with the Lord. And he gets blown away by what God says to him. Now, first, Habakkuk is absolutely broken hearted because the nation of Israel is utterly sinful. Look at verse four of chapter one. Habakkuk says, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So he's complaining to God. He's like, God, do you not care anymore? Because when I, I think about your people, I live in the midst of them and they are grossly immoral. Your people have lost it. And God, you're acting like you don't even care. So what's the deal? What are you doing? And then God responds in verse six. Well, actually begins responding in verse five, but verse six, we kind of see God's 
response. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And the Babylonians again are going to roll into Jerusalem on 586 and burn it all down. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They're dreaded, they're feared, their justice, their authority, all of that originates within themselves and on and on and on they go. And so God says, yeah, I am responding. If you look outside the borders of Israel, Habakkuk, you'll see the Babylonians and you see them growing stronger and stronger and more fearsome. I've raised them up, so I'm going to answer your question with them. Very shortly, they're going to roll in and just wipe my people out. Now, immediately Habakkuk said, okay, now i got a real problem. Because why in the world would you send someone worse than Israel to punish Israel? That made no sense to the prophet. And so if you'll notice with me in verse 12, Habakkuk's talking back to God. And he says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And you, O rock, have established them, the Babylonians, to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And he's like, God, I don't get this. I, I know Israel's wicked. But you're going to use the Babylonians to wipe out your people. They're worse than your people. Why would you ever do this? And so when you get to chapter two, verse one, God, well, you see Habakkuk standing and waiting on his answer. He's made his plea with God. And notice two, verse one, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I'll keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Verse two, then the Lord answered me. So this is a picture. He asked the question. I just absolutely don't get it, God. And so we get this picture of him standing outside on the on the gate or on the fence going, I'm just going to stand here. Do you answer me? Because I, I can make no sense out of what you just told me you're going to do. Now, he answers prophetically, God does, with a vision about the future. So look with me in verse three. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, God says, it hastens toward the goal. It will not fail, though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Oh, wait, that's New Testament gospel. The righteous will live by faith. We'll actually get to that in the book of Romans. What's God doing here? Well, he finishes out chapter two by telling Habakkuk, Oh, when they get finished judging the nation of Israel, I'm going to lay waste to Babylon. I am completely going to put them down and wipe them off the face of history. And you're like, wait a minute. All right, we got two deads here. You got Israel that's going to be dead because of the Babylonians. God is judging them. You got the Babylonians that are going to be dead because God is going to judge them once he uses them. And so we have this vision Ah, uh, yes, but the righteous, they will live by faith. And I'm pretty sure Habakkuk didn't get that. But when we get to chapter three, we see him live by faith. So look at chapter three, the very last chapter, and it's a prayer request. Chapter three, verse two, O Lord, I have heard the report about you and I am afraid. I fear, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, God, remember your mercy. Look at verse 12. 
In indignation, you have marched through the earth. In anger, you have trampled the nations. This is what God will do. He will trample the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, that is Christ. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from neck to thigh. He's speaking about the final judgment. God is going to judge the nations and he is going to gut them from their thigh to their neck. But he will save his people. Verse 16. I heard all of this, Habakkuk said, and my inward parts trembled. I bet. At the sound, my lips began to quiver like a child. Think about that. Decay entered my bones and in my place I trembled. Because here's the reality, Habakkuk. I must wait quietly for this day of distress. Now stop. He's heard from the Lord. He knows his people are godless. He knows the Babylonians are just outside the city gate. And they, he knows that they're coming and they're going to kill and capture everybody. And there's absolutely nothing the prophet can do but just to sit and wait on that to take place. Can you imagine? But watch what he does with his heart. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me walk on my high places. That's why I tell you, your joy must be in the Lord. Because I don't know anyone in the Bible that's in a more precarious and dangerous position than Habakkuk is in this moment. And then he reminds himself, my joy is in the Lord. I'm okay. The Babylonians may come and we will certainly get laid waste, but I will sing for joy in the Lord because he is my Lord. That's why I tell you, and that's why you can go back to Psalms 33. David is spending so much time encouraging the congregation to sing for joy in the Lord. In verse 21, they respond with, oh, our heart rejoices in him because we know to trust him. So I, I can't think of a, a more significant purpose for your pastor than to encourage you in your spiritual lives to trust the Lord in all things. And most of the time, that means you stand with arms crossed waiting on the Lord. That's it. We all the time, we want something to do, don't we? We want to fix the situation. We want to manipulate it. We want to change it. We want it to go this way so we'll feel what we think is joy. But that's not joy, y'all. That's just you messing with things. It's very difficult like Habakkuk to just stand there in distress and remind himself, my joy is in the Lord. I'll just wait. That's trust. That's biblical trust. That's trusting the Lord. So let's go and watch how David does this. And we'll walk through some of these. And, and, but I do want you to see the flow because I told you it's very powerful. Um, look at verse 6. We're in Psalms 33. Look at verse 6. Notice 
the second part of that first part of that passage, the heavens were made. See that? Now look in verse 10. The nations. So we've gone from the heavens to the nations. Look at verse 13. Second part of verse 13. All the sons of man are all the sons of men. Look at verse 18. Those who fear him. Notice the progression. Heavens, God is sovereign. Nations, God is sovereign. All of mankind, God is sovereign. His eye is on those who fear him, his people. God is sovereign. In other words, what part of that was God not sovereign? I forget. None of it. Therefore, David says, trust him, trust him, trust him. There is nothing that he is not sovereign over or all powerful over. His power is displayed in creation. His power is displayed over the nations. His power is displayed over all of mankind. And he delivers his people and he protects his people because his power is over his people. And then you have the congregational response. So. Where do you find joy? And we'll look at these passages with the time we have many. Where do you find joy? Where is it located? In the Lord. How do you find it? How do you appropriate it? Trusting in him. It's really that simple, y'all. Trusting in the Lord. Sometimes that involves obedience, doesn't it? But much of the time it involves waiting. So how does David instill trust? By talking about the character of God. Heavens, nations, all mankind, his church. He's sovereign and he's powerful over all. Trust him. Let's go back and we'll walk through these some. Verses six through nine is his power displayed in creation. You know, this is where I hang my hat and I do wear a hat. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. This is interesting. Verse seven, he gathers is in what is similar to a present tense. He continuously gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he lays up the deeps in storehouses. And the reason that's fascinating is because when you think of the seas, you get a grasp that they're the most difficult part of creation to control. And I had this thought as well. Earth is covered by anybody know the percentage? 70 percent. That's a little crazy. You think you're living in the neighborhood, and then all of a sudden 70 percent of your neighborhood is covered with water. You're going to get a little nervous that might, you might need to move to higher ground. 70 percent of the earth is covered with water. And yet that doesn't cause any problem for us because we know the one who stores the waters up in heaps. And he's commanded and set their boundaries. So God is sovereign over creation. And of course, verse eight should is the appropriate response. It should be the response. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe of him. Why should they? Because he spoke and it was created. He commanded and it stood fast. And of course, what's the one thing that's been stripped? One of the very first things that was stripped away from our Christianity in the last generation or two. The idea that God created. 
And yet that's the reason why all the earth should fear him. And that's been hidden from them. They no longer think God created. Verse 10. He begins to talk about his sovereign rule over the nations as a whole. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. And I'll stop right there before I read the next verse. That alone should draw us comfort because the nations gather together, right, against God and his anointed one. And God says, I just frustrate all their plans. They try to do this and they try to do that as nations of people and nations rise and nations fall. And I'll talk a little bit more about nations in just a second. But it is God who... Not only did he create it, he guides it. And it doesn't matter if they're godly or ungodly, does not change. God guides ungodly nations exactly the way he wants them to go. And he always has. When you begin to study about the New Testament and you figure out Alexander the Great, who laid waste to most of the known world before the Bible was written, changed everybody's language to coin a Greek. Everybody had to learn Greek because Alexander had conquered the world and he made them do what he wanted to do. And then God brings his word to his people in a language now that everybody in the world can understand. Thank you, Alexander. I know you didn't know me, but I wanted you to do that for me in order that I could accomplish my purposes. God nullifies the council. He frustrates the plans of the people. He does exactly what he wants to do. But then we have this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Now that specifically applied only to one nation in the history of man. And that is the nation of Israel. Now it also applies to the church. We are the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. And we have to be reminded, I could take you back to Habakkuk chapter three, where God says he will lay waste to the nations. But you do understand that's all nations. Everyone. I looked them up. The oldest nation that's still in existence now, I think, is Egypt. It's pressing into about 4000 years old. We're what, 250 somewhere, 250 to give you some perspective. We're not very old. But nations run their course. Some of them run a more noble course, but all of them end their course away from God because in the end, all nations are laid waste by God. There are no nations that survive. Now, I appreciate those who are proud of their nation, every nation. I think they should be if they can possibly find a reason to be proud of their nation. But at the same time, we don't need to blend nations in Christ because Christ, when he comes, he will burn them all down because they have run their own course. Right. Verse 13. Does it matter if they know the Lord or not? The Lord looks. He scans. That word means he scans from heaven. He sees. Notice all the alls. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. That's the Lord. No one is beyond, above, can go around his sovereign rule over all mankind. 
It's amazing that God is using the heart of the ruler of North Korea to accomplish his purposes. It's amazing to me, but that's what scripture teaches me. God is using those men who have taken over Afghanistan to accomplish his purposes because he controls their hearts to do whatever he wants to do. Even the guy is not the word that I can think of in our White House now. God guides and controls his heart to do whatever he wants to do. Does not matter. Deliverance cannot be found by mankind. I think 13 is, goes all the way down through 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. The horse, that's false hope. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Don't ever look anywhere for anything else to save you. There is no deliverance in anything else. Verse 18, the grand conclusion, behold, the eye of the Lord is... It reminds you of jealousy. God keeps a jealous eye on those who fear him, on those who hope for that covenant love, his kessed, his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. And by the way, they are the only ones that experience the deliverance of God. Not heavens and the earth, not the nations, not all mankind, Nope. There's just one group of people that experience the deliverance and his deliverance in verse 19 is to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. It is God who does that for those who fear him, who long for their loving kindness. God's protection is reserved for his people. And then you hear the congregational response. And this is how we need to respond. All right. From the cosmos to the nations, to all people, to his people, he is Lord. So we respond with these words, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. Our heart rejoices in him. Why? Why do you trust in God? Or why do you rejoice in God rather? Because we trust in his holy name. And then their request, let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. So where do you find joy? How do you find joy? How do you grow in trust? Last question. Mm. How do you grow in your trust? Who do you look to? The Lord. And what do you remind yourself of? He's, he's sovereign. He is ruler. He is Lord over all. How can I not trust him? And so that's what the preacher's doing. Calls the people to sing for joy in the Lord. And they sing for joy in the Lord because they have trusted in the Lord. And David gives them reasons to trust. His word, his works, his character, they're all perfect. So we turn our eyes toward heaven and we remind ourselves of the character of God in the most desperate of times. Think back to Habakkuk. Ah, your life's never going to get that bad. You're never going to stand on the, the precipice or the edge of absolute destruction knowing, well, it'll be here sometime tomorrow. Babylonians come marching in. We're all going to be dead. 
But that's okay. I remember who God is and I remember that I belong to him and therefore I rejoice in him because I trust him. That's hard, isn't it? Studying through this made me think about all my little problems like they were about that big. I was like, eh, I better not call that a problem anymore, you know? I'm thankful. You guys, I've seen, I've seen some amazing things among this body that instances where you guys have, have trusted the Lord. But I want us to grow in that, you know? You think about, and this is where in my mind I am, and I've watched you, Caleb, Andrew came over and brought the kids, and uh, which one of them was standing on the side of the pool and wouldn't jump? Was it Isaac? Because Olivia did, didn't she? One, one of them, I can't remember. One of them didn't want to jump. This year? Yeah, it was this year. It was Isaac. Didn't want to jump. Of course, Dad, standing in the water. The water's about here on Dad. Arms are out. Just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. And then finally he gets to the place where he trusts and he jumps and dad catches him and he didn't barely even get wet. I think of my spiritual life in that context. I know I can trust the Lord, but sometimes I'm just so afraid to just jump and let him catch me as if he could not or as if he could let me fall. It's just not possible. So David runs through all those lines. He'll catch you. He'll catch you. He'll catch you. He'll catch you. Trust him and jump. Right. And so we have to do those things and grow. Comments, questions?